So Acts chapter 8, we'll start at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him for a long time because he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Abraham Lincoln once said, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Now when we think about power, we might think about politicians or people who have a lot of money or people who are important in our society. And you know, you might think to yourself, well, that's not something that I deal with. I'm, not a, I'm just an ordinary person. I don't have any power, and I don't long for that kind of power. But I think the truth is we all have some kind of an experience with power, and that's because we all have an experience with money. In our culture, money often equals power. Money gives us the ability to do things that we might not normally be able to do. For example, someone who's a millionaire or billionaire might be able to buy a 10,000 square foot house, or they might be able to buy uh, a private jet. They might even be able to go into space, things that normal people could never even uh, dream of doing. If you want to run for political office, you have to have a lot of money or at least know a lot of people that have money. In the last presidential election, the two candidates combined spend, spent over $900 million. The thing about power or uh, money is that kind of the more we have of it, the more that we want it. You know, I would think that it would be opposite. And, you know, they did these studies where they kind of asked the question, do people who make less money value money more or people that make more money? And I would think people who make less money would value money more because of it. Um, So they value the little bit that they do have. But research has shown that that is not the case. Research shows that the more money you make, the more you value money. Uh, One study was done by Jeffrey uh, Pfeffer of the uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business and his colleagues at the University of Toronto and the Remnant University of China. 
And they did this study where they would ask students to create origami. And they'd give them like five minutes to do that. And for some of the students, they would give them $1 or $10. And for some of them, they would say that it was just random, that they just randomly gave them either $1 or $10. But for others, they told them that it was based upon the quality of their work. And what they found was that the people who were given $10, that, and they were told that it was based upon the quality of the work, they, deter, they valued money more than anybody else. People who made more money and it was based on the quality of their work. Pfeffer says this, it's like ego stroking. He says you can't get enough of it. So people who make a lot of money or who have a lot of power often have this desire or addiction to power and receiving that affirmation from that. But all of us have an experience with power to one extent or another. I mean, think about it this way. Three, two, 200, 250 years ago... What could you do with $50? You know, you might be able to buy an animal with the equivalent of $50, maybe buy a pair of shoes, maybe buy something from the blacksmith. But what can we do with that amount of money today? You can have somebody make food for you. You can have them serve that food to you. You can have them deliver that food to you. You can have somebody clean your car, go to Delta Sonic. You can have somebody cut your hair. Uh, You can... Have somebody drive you around with Uber or Lyft. You can buy a video for $10, $15, $20 and watch something where these people have spent millions of dollars and countless hours working on this product. And for $10, $15, $20, we can watch that and be entertained. You can go on Amazon for $50 or less. Have somebody pick out what you want pack it in a nice package, and hand deliver it to you in one to two days. We have a lot of power in our culture, more power than people 200 years ago had. But we don't think about that because for us often power is relative. And we think about the people who have a real lot of power, who have a real lot of money, have a lot of authority, and we think, I'm not like them, so I don't have much power, but I think all of us have power. But but it's true that power is relative. And as they say, there's some things that money can't buy. My brother just got back from Zimbabwe. And in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, they have kind of an interesting situation. Um, They were dealing with intense overinflation, so much so that um, a few years ago, one U.S. dollar was worth like 345 trillion uh, Zimbabwe dollars. And so they've, they're trying to fix that, and so they uh, kind of outlawed foreign currency, and they kind of keep a close, uh, tight wraps on the currency that they do issue. And so my brother goes to Zimbabwe. He had American money on him. He has credit cards, but barely anybody takes credit cards, and people won't take American currency. So normally you'd go to the bank and get that exchanged, and you'd be able to buy things. The thing is, the banks don't have any money. They only get money at a certain time period and a very limited amount, and and the locals kind of know when the money is going to be there. And so as soon as the money is there, they come and take the money out, and then the money is gone. So here he is in a grocery store with, you know, you could have like $1,000 United States currency. You could have a Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and you're not able to buy a loaf of bread. 
And power is relative. Money is relative. In the passage that we're looking at today, we're seeing a person who has a lot of power. And we're going to see the extent of his power, but we're also going to see the limits of his power. We're going to see the fact that his power is dwarfed by the power of God. And as we look at this passage, I think it teaches us something about how we view life, how we view power, how we view authority. This man's name is Simon Magus. Simon Magus is a magician. And we think about magicians in our day and age. We often think about people who do magic tricks. If you watched America's Got Talent last week, they had this uh, amazing magician on there. And he had these jelly beans, different colored jelly beans. And somehow, just right before your eyes, the jelly beans turn into Rubik's Cubes. And we know that they don't actually molecularly change into Rubik's Cubes. We know that there's some kind of trick involved. There's some kind of sleight in hand that it just appears that they turn into Rubik's Cubes. So when we think about magic, we often think about it in that way. But in that culture, there was some of that that happened. But often, people who did magic, they really believed that they did have spiritual power. And the truth is, they probably did have some of that power. It says in the text that Simon Magus told people that he was great. It says in the text that from the least to the greatest of them, they had high esteem for him. They said, this man is the power of God that's called great. At the very least, they considered him to be some kind of divine angelic figure. They may have even believed that he was God himself or God's son. And we need to acknowledge first that there is spiritual power in this passage and in life that exists apart from Christ. For example, take psychics or mediums. In our culture, the psychics and interest in psychics and mediums has increased exponentially, especially among young people, millennials. Uh, They found that young adults, 50% of young adults, consider astrology to be a science. The psychic services industry, including astrology, aura reading, mediumship, tarot card reading, and and palmistry, among other metaphysical metaphysical services, is now worth $2 billion annually. Melissa Jane, owner of a a Brooklyn-based metaphysical boutique, says she's seen an uptick in interest in the occult in the past five years, especially among young New Yorkers. The store offers workshops like Witchcraft 101, Astrology 101, and Spirit Seance. She says whether it be spellcasting, tarot, astrology, meditation, and trance, or herbalism, these traditions offer tangible ways for people to enact change in their lives. She says for a generation that grew up in a world of big industry, environmental destruction, large and oppressive governments, and toxic social structures, all of which seem too big to change, this can be incredibly attractive. Now, most of the time, I think in our culture, when you talk about mediums or psychics, most of the time there's some trick involved. You know, I watched 2020 uh, a number of years ago, and they had this actor, and the actor pretended to be a psychic, and he had this kind of stock phrase or reading that he would give people, and it was basically things where it would be true to anybody. And he told everybody the same exact reading, and yet after they came out from this reading... They were said, the people who you know were getting the reading were like, he knew exactly who I was. He knows exactly what my future was going to be like, not knowing that everybody's future was exactly the same. So oftentimes when we think about psychics or mediums, there's some kind of a trick involved. But I don't think that's always the case. 
I think there is spiritual power that some of these psychics or mediums have, just like Simon Magus had some power, some spiritual power. And just as an aside, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, if someone has power, spiritual power, that's not in the name of Christ and that's not of Christ, it's something we need to run away from, something we need to stay as far away from as possible. But Simon has some measure of power. He has authority. He has people who think that he's great, people who call him divine. And yet, we see also in this passage, there's limits to that authority. The people see the signs and wonders that are done by Philip, and they're amazed by them. Apparently, the signs and wonders that Philip was doing were greater than the signs that Simon Magus did. But even more than the signs and wonders that he did was the fact that people in Samaria are believing in the gospel. This is an incredible, miraculous thing that's happening here. Remember, so Philip goes down to Samaria. And the truth is, if it wasn't for the persecution of the church, we don't know if Philip even would have gone down to Samaria. Because Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, didn't like each other. They had two rival places of worship. The Jews at Jerusalem, the Samaritans at Mount Gerizim. Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. So there was this constant animosity between them. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Jews would have probably asked the question, is there such a thing as a Good Samaritan? They thought all Samaritans were bad, were half-breeds. And so Philip, this outsider, Jewish person, comes into Samaria and he starts preaching the gospel. And you would think that people would be hesitant. You'd think that people would be weary. And yet people are signing up to believe in Jesus Christ. And this explains another feature of the text that you might find interesting, you might have wondered about as we read it. It says in the text that after the people believed, then later Peter and John come and pray for them, lay their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And you might think to yourself, well, I thought that when you believed in Jesus, as soon as you believed in Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit. I believe that's true generally based on the teachings of Scripture. But at this instance, I believe that Peter and John wanted to communicate something very clearly to this church. They wanted to communicate that the Samaritans are part of the people of God. They didn't want the Samaritans to be considered this kind of offshoot, uh, this sect of Judaism. They wanted them to be considered the full members of the body of Christ. And they didn't want this animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And so we see in this passage this, this miraculous fact that Jews... And Samaritans are coming together. Samaritans are believing in the gospel and following after Jesus. And it's so incredible that even Simon Magus follows along himself. It says he believes in the text. It uses a different word for going after Philip than the usual word. He probably didn't believe in Jesus in, in a saving sense. He probably was uh, interested in the, the things that Philip was doing. And he believed in some sense. And so even he's following after Philip and amazed by the things that he's doing. So the Samaritans believe in Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit, are baptized. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, conceivably there's some evidence that that's happening. It couldn't have been just an internal thing that's happening. Uh, There must have been some kind of miracles that were involved in that so that people saw that they received the Holy Spirit and Simon saw that they had received the Holy Spirit. 
But we see in this passage that Simon wants that gift that the apostles have. He sees that that Simon Peter and John prays for the Samaritans and they receive the Holy Spirit. And they're, in in essence, able to transfer their power. And he thinks to himself, I'm not able to do that. I mean, I have some spiritual power, but I'm not able to transfer that power to others. And so he does what he knows to do. He does what is common in magical practice. He offers to buy that trick, that skill. That's what they would do if they wanted to have a, a spell or a potion that they didn't have. They would try to buy it. And so he offers what he has, money, authority. He says, I'll, I'll trade you that, and you just give me this ability to give the Holy Spirit. Peter responds in a very stern way, and look at what he says in verse 20. He says, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Some translators have translated this a little bit crassly as to hell with you and your money. The reason that Peter is so stern with Simon is that Simon has missed the point. He's missed the point of the Holy Spirit. He's missed the point of what it means to follow after Jesus because he views life through the lens of power and authority. And he just wants to add this new ability to his repertoire. He's not focused on Christ. He's focused upon glorifying himself. The apostles, everything that they do, even when they do incredible works, they point those incredible works back to Christ so that people would see Christ through them. Not so Simon Magus. He wants to take this skill, this gift from the apostles and use it for his own purposes. And he thinks to himself, how can I benefit from this ability? And so after Peter rebukes him, He tells Simon Magus, you need to repent, you need to pray to God and ask forgiveness for what you've done because your heart is not right with God. And look what he does. He doesn't cry out to God. He tells Peter, he says, you cry out to God for me. Do you realize what he's doing here? He's still operating in the confines and the understanding that power is what's most important. He says, Peter, you're the one who has the power. You're the one who can give the Holy Spirit. You're more powerful than I. So I don't need to come to God and ask for forgiveness. If you would ask God for forgiveness on my behalf, maybe God would be more likely to listen to you. Because you have a way, you have this relationship with God. If you use life through this lens of power, as if the things that God are most interested in is power. Yet we learn in this passage and throughout the rest of the scriptures that God is not interested in our power. He's not interested in our strength. And we learn in the scriptures that God is the God of the powerless. I love the way that the NIV uh, puts Romans 5, 8, or 5, 6. It says, for you see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 Corinthians 1, 25 to 31 says this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to shame the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God is the God of the powerless. The Bible teaches us that we're strong when we're weak. The one that God looks with favor upon is not the one who has it all together, who has authority and power. It's the one that comes to him in repentance and humility. So the question I'd like for us to consider today is, are we seeking power or are we seeking a person? Are we seeking power or are we seeking a person? Simon Magus was seeking power. He was seeking authority. He wasn't interested in a relationship with Christ. It was how can this benefit me and how can this get people to respect me and honor me more? How can this increase my power? Now for some of us, you know, we think about that. We think power doesn't drive me, but all we think about is money. And that's the driving force in our life. And we feel like if we have a lot of money, we'll have control, we'll have power over our lives. Others of us, maybe we're driven by popularity. And we think if other people respect me, then I'll feel important and I'll feel powerful. Others of us, maybe we treat our spouse or other loved ones poorly. We never repent We never say that we're wrong. And the reason is because we want to feel powerful. We want to feel like we're in control. Others of us, maybe we'll never open up to another person. We'll never share our struggles with another believer, even when those, uh, that other believer could help us on our journey. And the reason we do that is because if we, if we shared something with other people, we'll appear weak. We want to appear strong. We want to appear like we have it all together. We want to feel like we have power. Others of us maybe were like the Samaritans before they met Jesus. The Samaritans were just kind of following whatever seemed right. It says in the text that they were following after Simon Magus because he amazed them by his magical works. And they just keep going from thing to thing, trying to be amazed. For some of us, again, that might be money. For some of them, some of us here, maybe that's sex. Whatever catches our attention in the moment, we go to those things for anything that would make us feel in control and powerful. For some of us, that's drugs or alcohol. And we abuse those things, and in those moments, we feel powerful. We feel like we're in control. We feel like everything is okay. We're like those Samaritans just following after those magical works. Whatever seems to satisfy us, whatever will increase our standing... We'll follow after those things. Yet in the light of Christ, all those things fade by the wayside. None of those things satisfy. There's many things in this world that attempt to lead us away from Christ. But Jesus tells us that we're strong when we're weak. That our strength is not in ourselves, but it's in Jesus Christ and the message that we proclaimed. And the question is, whose voice are we going to listen to today? There's a Greek legend of uh, the sirens, and sirens are these kind of part bird, part human creatures. Um, In some renditions, they were represented as mermaids. 
And the story goes that as sailors would pass by the islands of the sirens, the sirens would start singing. And it was the most beautiful, mesmerizing, intoxicating song that men could ever hear. And when they would hear that song, oftentimes sailors would just jump overboard and swim towards the islands. But then they would be crushed against the jagged and sharp rocks as they reached the shore. There's another character in Greek mythology named Odysseus. And it was said that Odysseus was passing the island of the sirens. And he wanted to hear the siren song, but he didn't want to jump overboard and die. So he had his crew tie him up to the mast of the ship. And then he ordered his crew to stuff their ears with wax so they wouldn't be able to hear the song. And so they went through the island of the sirens, and he heard the song, and everything in him wanted to jump overboard, but he couldn't because he was tied up and his crew couldn't hear him. But there's another man, his name was Jason. And it was said that Jason knew a famous musician named Orpheus. It was said that Orpheus was one of the most gifted musicians in all of the world. It was said that when he played his harp, the, the rocks would dance. And so they, he was on the ship, and they started coming close to the island of the sirens. And Orpheus started to play his harp. And as he played his harp, the sirens started to join in with the song, of Orpheus. And they started singing together. But the thing was, Orpheus's song was so beautiful that the men didn't want to jump over to the sirens any longer. They stayed right in the boat just to listen to Orpheus's song. I think that's a picture of our life with Christ. Living a life in relationship with God is infinitely more beautiful than anything this world has to offer. On the surface, it might seem beautiful. But in the light of Christ, all those things are nothing. Are we seeking power? Or are we seeking a person, a person of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God who is powerful. And so because you're powerful, it's okay that we don't have it all together. It's okay that we're weak. Lord, I pray that we would all come to you with a posture of humility. Not with this attitude that we have something to offer you, but acknowledging the fact that you have everything to offer to us. Lord, I pray that we would have that humility today. Lord, I pray that we would listen to your voice, a voice that's more beautiful than anything the world has to offer, and obey you in everything that we do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.